In those days, a mist rose up from the ground to blanket the earth, and its vapors irrigated the land. One day, the eternal God scooped dirt out of the ground, sculpted it into the shape we call human, breathed the breath that gives life into the nostrils of the human, and the human became a living soul. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Ricky Gervais, the comedian and creator of the hit television show The Office, has a problem with the famous nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty. He states plainly that he has never been able to figure out the moral of the poem. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Gervais says, the first thing I can come up with is don't sit on a wall if you're an egg. But then he says he's not sure how that's instructive to a five-year-old human being. He imagines that if you used Humpty Dumpty to teach a bunch of five-year-olds, don't sit on a wall if you're an egg, they would be extremely confused. So Gervais abandons that moral and takes another tack in search of the moral of Humpty Dumpty. Don't send horses to perform medical procedures. And I think that one makes more sense, but it still causes us to wonder why anyone would think sending a horse was a good idea in the first place. Gervais says, of course they couldn't put him back together again. They've got no dexterity whatsoever. They've got no thumbs. They can't even sew. If someone tells you we've got a cracked egg, should we send a horse? The answer is definitely not. Do not send a half-ton creature with no fingers to fix an egg. A hoof is actually the perfect egg-crushing device. Now, Gervais is hilarious and tells this story much better than I did. But his point about what we have done with this poem is well-made. A cursory internet search into the origins and meaning of Humpty Dumpty reveals that none of the verses of the poem ever actually state that Humpty Dumpty is an egg. The earliest known versions of the rhyme date back to 1797 and include no mentions of an egg at all. In fact, the idea that Humpty Dumpty was an egg was introduced by Lewis Carroll in Through the Looking Glass 75 years later in 1872. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the term Humpty Dumpty dates back to the 17th century and refers to a drink of brandy boiled with ale. And by the 18th century, Humpty Dumpty had become slang for a clumsy person. Now, there are many theories as to what this poem was meant to communicate to its original audience. My favorite, only because it seems to be the most logical, is that in the 17th century, the city of Colchester had a cannon that the city residents referred to as Humpty Dumpty mounted on its city wall. When an enemy cannon strike hit the wall beneath Humpty Dumpty during a siege in 1648, the cannon fell off the wall and was too heavy to be raised up again by all the king's horses and men. Now, there is no way that when you got up this morning, you could have guessed that you would learn this much about the Humpty Dumpty poem. I have to confess that until Ricky Gervais brought the lunacy of the rhyme to my attention, I had never even considered it. I had gone my entire life assuming that I had grasped all that Humpty Dumpty had to teach me. 
along with what I would assume would be millions of people, I long ago concluded that Humpty Dumpty was a personified egg with an unfortunate name who fell off a wall and somehow stumped the king's cavalry in the process. End of story. Except now I know that wasn't the end of the story. There was so much that I had missed. So much meaning of which I had never even considered. So as we just heard a two-sentence excerpt from the Genesis 2 poem, I have to wonder if the wisdom of a nursery rhyme can actually help me through the looking glass, help me uncover meaning I have never considered. Have I settled for an egg on a wall? Have I picked up some confusing or decontextualized assumptions and interpretations? What have I missed? Humpty Dumpty is a simple 300-year-old four-line gravity-based poem that has no real meaning attached to it. It's not really communicating anything of significance. Not anymore, that is. Not to us here sitting here today. By contrast, the scriptural excerpt we heard a few moments ago is from a sacred poem that is at a minimum 2,500 years old. A poem that at the very least is dealing with the creation of humanity and the nature of the source of the entire universe. Surely it deserves some thought and examination. Hebrew Bible scholar and author Walter Brueggemann writes, No text in Genesis or likely the entire Bible has been more used, interpreted, and misunderstood than this text. This applies to careless popular theology as well as to the doctrine of the church. Our first and most important task in interpreting these stories must therefore be to distinguish between the statement of the text and the superstructure laid upon it. Superstructure laid upon it. Yikes. That is a serious image. I think Brueggemann uses such a serious image to let his students know that the real story and the meaning it was originally intended to convey is buried underneath a complex structure of ideologies, religious doctrines, and questions that this poem was never meant to answer. When addressing the superstructure of interpretation and law that had been built upon the commandment to keep the Sabbath... The rabbis described it as a mountain hanging by a hair. It's an odd but memorable image that highlights the lifeless and immovable superstructure attached to God's story by only the thinnest of organic connections. Perhaps we could think of the superstructure built upon the creation poems of Genesis as a great wall, a wall so big and so high that it would be precarious, it would be a precarious place for an egg to sit. I think Brueggemann might be suggesting we need to look underneath any egg-on-a-wall conclusions. So let's do that. Let's attempt just for a few moments to set aside the superstructure placed on top of the words of Genesis 2 and hear them as if we were hearing them for the first time. In order for us to do that, We can't bring anything we think we already know about these words with us. To help us with the task of coming to the text empty-handed, let me ask you to participate in a brief 
visualization exercise. We all have thoughts and conclusions about God, and most of us probably have thoughts and conclusions about Genesis 2 and creation. These are our beliefs, our convictions. Maybe they're our skepticism or our anger. Maybe it's our experiences, things people have told us, things we have read, our opinions about the God in which we do or do not believe. I want to invite you to close your eyes for a brief moment and imagine all of those thoughts, ideas, and beliefs as marbles. Each one is a shiny little ball. Got it? Good. Now take all those marbles and put them in your pocket or in a bucket or in a safety deposit box. Whatever the case may be, set them aside. They're not going anywhere. Your marbles are safe. You can have them all back. You can get them out and play with them again in about 10 minutes if you'd like. But for now, put them out of sight. Now, open your eyes and hear these words again without any of those marbles. In those days, a mist rose up from the ground to blanket the earth, and its vapors irrigated the land. One day, the eternal God scooped dirt out of the ground, sculpted it into the shape we call human, breathed the breath that gives life into the nostrils of the human, and the human became a living soul. Two sentences. Depending on our translation, somewhere between 25 and 40 words devoted to the creation of the human species. It's almost as short and simple as a nursery rhyme. And yet, if we listen, without all of our marbles, without any strange questions this poem was never meant to answer, this poem is intricately profound, overflowing with imagery, and dripping with meaning. This poem wants to communicate ideas about God and existence and relationship. These words want to create big, spacious ideas, the kind of ideas that have so much room that we can all bring our varied experiences and imaginations. Ideas like this. We come from a hands-on, mouth-to-mouth creator. After a mist rises up from the ground to moisten the dry land, the eternal God scoops up some dirt and sculpts it into the shape of a human. The verb that we translate in English as formed or sculpted is the Hebrew phrase vayatsir. The most common association of this phrase in Hebrew is with the action of a potter or a yatser. The origin of humanity is portrayed in terms of an artistic, creative act. And that creative act is not distant and removed. This creative act is up close and personal. This artist, this potter, is hands-on with the dirt and clay. This is not magic wands and lightning bolts from afar. This is an invested artist covered in the grit and grime of the very dirt being shaped. Incidentally, the Hebrew word for dirt, or dust, or clay, or earth, is adamah, 
Everybody say, Adama. That being that the eternal one is shaping is Adam. Everybody say, Adam. I know your South Texan really wants to say Adam, but Adam. And that's a play on the word Adama or dirt, the very thing from which Adam will be shaped. In Hebrew, Adam means humanity. Adam is made from Adama. Humanity is of the dirt or clay or dust or earth. Dirt, however, is not the only medium for this creator artist. This sculptor also acts as a bellows, breathing life into what has been formed. This creative act also involves mouth to mouth. Scooping and sculpting clay, working it, breathing life into it. This is up close and connected. This is invested and involved. We come from a hands-on, mouth-to-mouth creator. It's a pretty big idea. Here's another one. We are all bearers of the divine. The hands-on, mouth-to-mouth God breathes into the Adama to give it life. This is not a small scientific idea. This is a big, hairy, transcendent idea about who we are. The idea is that we carry around within us the breath of God. The thing that makes us Adam more than Adama, more than dirt, the thing that makes us alive is the very breath of God. The Hebrew word used to describe that breath in Genesis 2 is the word ruach. Is the word that means breath and spirit and wind all at once. We are not just Adama. We are not just dirt. We are Adam, humanity. Adama and ruach together. We are a mixture of the earth and the heavens. We are a collision of the common and the sacred. We all have the same common earthly form, and we are all of the divine. Not just the Israelites or the Christians when they're faithful. Everyone in the beginning. Humanity, the dirt and breath people. Not just the ones that look like me or believe like me. Everyone from the very beginning. If we are breathing, the breath in our lungs is the spirit of God. We carry the divine breath. Hear this unmistakable statement of Genesis 2. You are a bearer of the divine. And so is the person sitting next to you. So is your neighbor. So is your enemy. In this story, the breath connects us all. We are all family. Diane, you have the breath of God within you. Greg, you have the breath of God within you. We are all family. We are all bearers of the divine. 
Again, this is not a small idea. It's big and roomy. It's too big to be contained actually with just one idea. The ruach, the divine breath, creates space for another big idea. The divine breath within us, the one put there by a hands-on, mouth-to-mouth God, doesn't just communicate our divine nature and connection to each other. It also tells us God is as close to us as our very breath. The story tells us we don't have to wonder where God is. We don't have to feel isolated and disconnected and utterly alone. We don't have to search for the spirit, the ruach of God. It is within us. The Ruach Elohim, the breath of God, is with us and within us right now in each and every breath. God is not far away. God is not later. God is here and now within us all, filling our lungs, inspiring our lives. Can we miss it? Forget about it? Not think about it? Take it for granted like we all do with the physical act of breathing? You bet. I know I do. But this story says, remember. Even when we don't think about it, even when we take it for granted, the great I am is in the space of our lungs. God is as close to us as our very breath. We come from a hands-on, mouth-to-mouth creator. We are all bearers of the divine, and God is as close to us as our very breath. Three pretty big ideas, ideas that have been born out of the tribe of Israel, those who wrestle with the divine and pass down to us, ideas that have been followed and forged for thousands of years of painstaking growth by real dirt people just like you and like me. Ideas that are inhabited by something that cannot be measured. A power, a breath, a spirit that somehow makes them more than just ideas. And sadly, ideas I don't talk about or hear about enough. Ideas I don't always keep before me as a guide or remembrance. Ideas that most people don't associate with the church or with our faith. And if I'm honest, I'm not even sure that these ideas are ideas that people associate with me. And this is supposed to be my job. I come from a hands-on, mouth-to-mouth creator, but I am way too comfortable being a detached observer. I am a bearer of the divine. But it sure is easy for me to forget that you are. God is as close to me as my very breath. But the ways in which I act and speak sometimes make it seem as though God isn't even in the room, let alone in my lungs. You know, I see something else in this poem now. I see the distance between the garden of this creation and the world in which I live. They're not the same. Not even close. And I don't like it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to look into my city 
a city that leads the nation in impoverished children, and be reminded that my creator rolled up divine sleeves and got elbow deep in the dirt in order to sculpt something beautiful and alive. I'd rather keep a safe distance and stay in my comfort zone. I don't want to reconcile the way I view or treat people who look different than me or believe different than me to the idea that they are all bearers of the divine. I'd rather judge them, categorize them, and dismiss the ones that I decide aren't worthy. And I don't want to remember that God is as close to me as my very breath because then I'll have to deal with God and allow God to deal with me. I'd rather get my marbles back out and cover this story up. The truth is, it's a heck of a lot easier for me to bury this story underneath the superstructure Brueggemann wrote about than to deal with the ideas it actually presents. It feels safer for me to keep this poem encased in doctrine and debates than to let it speak to me. You know, left to my own devices, I think I prefer Humpty Dumpty as a cautionary tale about eggs sitting on walls. Then it doesn't mean anything, and it's easier to control. You know, I was, when I was researching the words of Genesis 2, I found that Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, teaches the fundamental question of these poems and stories is not how did the world or humanity come into being? But rather, how shall I live? If he's right, and I believe he is, then this story tells me from the very beginning, from our origin in an act of creative love, all the king's daughters and all the king's sons We're created to roll up our sleeves to put breath and dirt, heaven and earth, together again. Let's pray. Blessed are you, Lord God, sovereign of the universe, who fills us with your breath, your spirit, your ruach. We breathe in response to your story. We breathe in response to your love. As we reconnect to our breath, we ask for your help to feel and know the connection that your spirit provides, our connection to you, our connection to our identity, our connection to each other. We hear and receive the calling to roll up our sleeves and be people of the dirt and breath. We see that our rabbi, our brother, our savior, Yeshua, Jesus the Christ, is our model for this. We see that he was fully human, fully dirt, and fully God, fully breath. May your hands remain on us, shaping us, molding us to be more like Yeshua. May your breath and love flow out of us onto anyone and everyone we encounter.
It's in his name we pray. Amen.